Hello and welcome to this, the sixth edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller and my guest on this week's programme is Franz de Waal, one of the world's leading primatologists. Franz grew up in Holland and has lived and worked in Atlanta since the 1980s. There he studies the great apes and is responsible for discovering reconciliation behaviour in chimps. This discovery helped to overturn the view of chimps as killer apes. The book he talked to me about, Irinarape, is the first to undertake a three-way study of humans, chimps, and the so-called forgotten ape, the bonobo. As my conversation with France, recorded in a rather noisy London hotel, revealed, bonobos are the missing piece in the puzzle that might help us to understand that our own animal nature contains both bad and good. I asked France what drew him to this area of study in the first place. But what got me to study the great apes is... It's, it's not really a special reason, is that I'm very fond of animals, and so as a child already I, I had animals. And I studied biolo- biology for that reason, because I'm attracted to animals, and um, that I ended up with the primates is sort of an accident. I could also have ended up with fish or with birds or something like that, and I would probably have been equally happy. Studying primates has this special challenge, of course, that you then can compare with humans, much more easily than if you study fish, for example. And so that has become a sort of my trade now, is comparing primates with humans, but that was not the original intention. And the book is, in a sense, a corrective or a counter-argument to the view which has prevailed for the last 25, 30 years, that those aspects which we have in common with the great apes, and in particular chimpanzees, are the worst aspects of mm-hmm. human nature. I mean, can, you, can you say a little bit about what, what that prevailing view has been and what's, what sort of shaped it? Yeah, so I've lived for the last 30 years with that view that we are killer apes and that everything we do nasty we can compare with animals. We are acting like animals, we say. And uh, anything positive or nice is is basically our own invention, according to the view of some people. And already 25 years ago, when I discovered reconciliation behavior in in chimpanzees, so they, they kiss and embrace after a fight, for example... Uh, there was resistance to that, not, not because it doesn't exist, people didn't deny it existed, but to call it reconciliation, which has a positive sort of connotation, to call it peacemaking, that sounded all too sort of romantic for them. They, they, wanted animal, they didn't want animals to be like that. And so I had to fight to establish that animals have reconciliation, have empathy, have genuine cooperation, genuine altruism, and there's still a whole bunch of people who don't believe that, but I think the vast majority of people who work on primates, they are seeing that that other side of the picture definitely exists. For example, recently a paper came out on baboons uh, in the field where they showed that female baboons who have more grooming relationships, they have more surviving offspring. So so clearly indicating that if you have bonded animals, uh, you have an advantage, actually, uh, as you would expect, because otherwise why why would they be spending so much time grooming each other? And then the, the, the third piece in the jigsaw, which consists of humans, the chimpanzees, is the bonobo, which, mm-hmm. which was only discovered by Western science in, the, I think, the late 1920s. And science was quite slow to, to sort of accept it as a, mm-hmm. as, a, as a significant piece in the jigsaw, wasn't it? Yeah, there's sort of two reasons. One is that the bonobo is rare. There's maybe 150 in captivity. There's thousands of chimps in captivity, so the bonobo is rare. And in the field, it's very hard to reach. It lives, lives in what we now call, ironically, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is a big political mess. So that's one reason that the bonobo is little known. The other one, I think, is that the bonobo didn't fit 
the picture that we had established of the human species, the human species being aggressive, territorial, dominance-oriented, um, maybe tool use was emphasized also, so, so that's sort of the emphasis on the human species. And the bonobo is weak on all these parts. The bonobo is not violent, the bonobo doesn't use much tools, and so the bonobo was shoved aside as an irrelevant species, even though it's exactly equally close to us as the chimpanzee genetically. And, and we now even have some evidence that came out half a year ago that there's a little piece of DNA that the bonobo has, that we have, and that the chimpanzee doesn't have. Now, we don't know what that means, that piece of DNA is involved in affiliation and bonding, for what we know. Uh, but it may mean that uh, the last common ancestor was actually not so much like a chimp, was maybe more like a bonobo. And so that's a debate that will be going on for quite a while. But we should take the bonobo extremely seriously. And if you do that, the whole view of human evolution may change. Because all that emphasis on aggression and warfare is, is maybe just a recent thing in the human species, and, 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 and it's also shown by the chimp. But that doesn't mean that the last common ancestor was showing that. One thing that fascinated me reading your book was thinking about the conditions in which the bonobo and the chimp split, how that split came about. Yeah, the, the thinking there is that, um, and this, this derives from ideas of Richard Wrangham, who, who is very strong on ecology, is that the ecology of the bonobo is quite different from the chimpanzee, because they live in a very rich forest area, uh, where they can reproduce at a little bit higher rate than chimpanzees, but the most important part is that they can stay together, they can travel together and forage together without too much competition. So females can travel together, and this is what makes it possible for females to have these strong alliances that allow them to dominate the males. So, so basically it's the, the, the feeding ecology that makes possible the social system that they have. And we think that the females uh, form these strong alliances partly to prevent males from infanticide, which is a common problem in many mammals, including in chimpanzees. And uh, in bonobos it has never been observed, and so we think that maybe the females have put an end to that. In the book there are many comparisons between how chimps, bonobos and humans um, conduct themselves in power relationships and in sexual relationships which are, which are fascinating I wondered if one of the biggest challenges in the book for readers would be um, when you deal with altruism Well yes, uh, altruism uh, I usually translate it into empathy uh, because empathy is sort of the mechanism that gets you to be altruistic sort of, so, so many animals many mammals at least have uh, basic emotional contagion, as it's called. Like, like you're in a happy mood, your dog is going to be in a happy mood. You're in a sad mood, your dog is going to be affected by that. And so many animals have these mood transmissions. I think the great apes and some other animals, like dolphins and elephants, may go beyond that, in that they not only are affected by the mood of somebody else, but they try to understand where that mood comes from. And what is distressing to somebody else? Why is somebody else distressed? Why is somebody else crying? And uh, try to figure that out and then uh, gear the helping behavior towards that. And so I describe cases of, for example, bonobos showing these higher levels of empathy. Uh, one example is um, a bonobo male at the San Diego Zoo who had seen that uh, the caretakers who had cleaned the moat of his enclosure uh, were going to fill it up with water. Uh, but he had also seen that four juveniles had descended into the dry moat at that point. And so he warned the caretakers and he uh, screamed and yelled at them until they uh, withdrew the four juveniles from the moat before he filled it, filled it up. So, so that takes a lot of perspective taking because he needs to understand that filling the moat with juveniles in there is not good for them. Uh, he himself would not have been affected at all. He, he fixed that problem. 
and and so that takes perspective taking which comes in with the great apes i think in addition to the the, the more simple forms of empathy and yes this leads to very high levels of uh, altruism not under all circumstances because a chimpanzee can also kill a monkey and eat it alive so so not they're not always empathic uh, and so just like in humans empathy has its filters so so we i think empathy is easily aroused in people empathy and sympathy but then we have all these filters that prevent it from expression on occasion because we cannot be empathic to everybody all the time. That, yes. that would kill us, basically. You talk about xenophobia quite a lot in the book, and that seems to be a characteristic that humans and, and the great apes share. Or yeah, that relates to empathy too, because, because, uh, and to our morality too, because uh, we make very sharp in-group, out-group distinctions. And so uh, our morality applies much more to our in-group than to out-groups, and, and, and to apply it to out-groups even to other species sometimes people want to apply morality to animals and so on it's a bit of a stretch of the system I'm not saying that we shouldn't try that but the system evolved the moral system and empathy evolved uh, to serve the, the in-group not the out-group the out-group can just be killed and chimpanzees do that actually and so uh, we are now in a time where we are actually looking at, at universal morality and applying it to everybody equally uh, but I think that's a fragile enterprise, and, and we need to be aware of that. Your, your book ends on what seemed to me quite a sort of strong political point. I wonder if you could say a little bit about about that ending. It seems it seems you have quite critical things to say about the state of the United States, for example. Yeah, the, that mostly relate to inequity. We did experiments on fairness. And the U.S. is now one of the most inequitous, is that a word? Uh, has a very high level in inequity. So, so uh, economists, they use um, a measure, which is called the Gini Index, to measure the, the level of inequity in different countries. And the U.S. now ranks somewhere between China and Kenya, I believe. Uh, certainly not in the same category as European countries or Japan. And so in the U.S., I believe uh, the top 1% of the country, rich people, they own 40% of everything in the country. So it's a very inequitous society. And what I'm arguing in my, in my book is that inequity undermines cooperation. And we know that from our primate studies, is that if you create high levels of inequity, the subordinates, the ones who are getting less than the others, they lose interest in cooperating. And for obvious reasons, because they're not getting enough out of it. And I think in a human society too, inequity creates tension and stress, and there's actually some disease data indicating that um, uh, it affects longevity and it uh, affects health. For example, the longevity in the U.S. is far behind other countries now. It's now, it's now ranking number 26 in the world. Uh, so there's 25 countries that have uh, better life expectancy than the U.S. And uh, there are people who relate that to um, the level of tension and stress and inequity in a social system. You talk about each of the species' own social orders and, and hierarchies and structures. I wondered about the relationship between the species, mm-hmm. and in particular about the fact that man has, has brought those two species into a point where they're endangered. And I wondered if you mm-hmm. felt pessimistic about simply having the time and the populations of, of native animals you know, into the future, because one of the things your book makes clear is there's still a huge amount of studying and learning to be done mm-hmm. on, on the great apes, and I wondered how you felt about the, the prospects for the, the future of that research. Yes, um, in, the, in the wild, uh, they're going to disappear. So, so the projections now are that by 2040 or 2050, we will maybe only have a few pockets of 
forest left where uh, bonobos and chimpanzees survive. Bonobos are more endangered, I think, than chimps. Chimps has probably 200,000 left in the field, and bonobos maybe between 10 and 20,000. Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we are getting very pessimistic because the forest keeps dwindling, and uh, we can have captive populations and we can maintain those, but that's not really the same. Even though all my work is on captive animals and I do experiments with them and I observe them and so on, uh, I can only do that that it makes sense if I can compare it with wild data. Uh, and, and so we absolutely need the field workers and we need the field data. And, um, and in addition, I think even if we did not do any research, if there was zero research going on on the great apes, it's still a sort of obligation that I feel we humans have to protect our closest relatives and to make sure that they survive. Because what a loss that would be if the animals that connect us the best, so to speak, to the natural world um, disappear. Imagine that we had lived in the West um, all our life without ever knowing about great apes. Let's say there were absolutely no great apes. Then um, we, we would have really felt even more disconnected than we already feel in the West because we, we are sort of people of disconnection with yes. nature. And uh, the apes bridge us and the apes make, make it very hard to deny the connection. And uh, so, so they're absolutely relevant. Our scientific knowledge is coming very late in the day in terms of their populations, isn't it? And I, I was thinking, mm. you know, only just in time, if, if they'd become extinct 100 years ago, that radical separation yeah. between mankind and animals would have, been, would have been easier to enforce. Yeah, the way we studied actually the apes uh, 100, uh, maybe more than 100 years ago, 150 years ago, was to shoot them and to bring the hide back. Or to capture one and put them in a zoo, and they usually died within a couple of years because we didn't know how to feed them. Uh, and so, yeah, the early studies of apes basically non-existent, and, and it's it's all happening in the last century, sort of, like since 1925, approximately, when Wolfgang Köhler started and Nadi Coates in Moscow started. Those are the pioneers of captive primates, Robert Yerkes. Uh, they started their captive studies and they were very respectful of the animals and they were very interested in tool use and that sort of issues. And then, of course, in the 60s, we had uh, Jane Goodall and Toshisara Nishida, the Japanese. They started their field sites. Mm. And so it's basically since the 50s or 60s that we have good knowledge of wild primates, uh, wild apes at least. And the book is full of amazing anecdotes of your own experience with, with the animals and also opens onto very big questions about our human nature and our relationship with the natural world. I wondered if the reader was to sort of take away one idea from it, what would you, what would you hope that, that the reader would take from the book? Yeah, the, the reader needs to come away with the idea that we are very broad in, time, in terms of our human nature, is that it, it ranges all the way from the most disastrous and horrible behavior that we show during wartime, for example, to the nicest, most altruistic behavior that we show at other times. So, so it runs an enormous spectrum, and for all these elements in the spectrum, we can find parallels with our closest relatives. Uh, on the nice end, more with the bonobos, and on the bad end, more with the chimpanzees. And so we, we are bipolar apes, I call us, uh, and all of that relates to human, human nature. Instead of focusing on one of the two, so for example, people have a tendency to either say that we are horrible, uh, we are terrible animals, uh, there's nothing worse than us. Uh, or they or they emphasize the nice side and say we're the only moral animals, we're the only religious animals, or whatever they, they will say about us. And, and I think we have that entire spectrum within us. Francis Well, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome.